Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling and very excited to be with you this week. I'm always excited, but this week in particular, because we get to talk about a topic that I really enjoy around supply and demand, and that is the 2020 census and supply and demand. So recently the 2020 census was released and we want to take a look and see what it has to say about supply and demand in the multifamily space. Did that imbalance that we have been watching between supply and demand, did it shrink or grow over this last decade? And so we're going to take a look at the 2020 census, at least this first release of data, and see what it tells us. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me, pat at marapolling.com. Swing by the Learning Center at marapolling.com. Lots of great content there as well. M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And with that, let's go ahead and get started. So this week, the 2020 census, actually last week, the week I'm recording this, it's this week, Last week, the 2020 census was released, at least the first piece of data. Now, almost everything you read about that release had to do with uh, politics and redistricting and the fact that some states were going to be gaining representatives in uh, the House and others were going to be losing representatives. And that's fantastic. Great conversation to have about that. That's not what we're here to talk about today. We want to look at the data to see what we can learn about supply and demand in the multifamily space. So a little bit of background on that. And if you haven't listened to any of our content or watched any of the content on the Learning Center about supply and demand, I would encourage you to do so. So we have a strong belief that there is a significant and right now fairly perpetual imbalance between supply and demand, i.e. a lack of supply in the multifamily space. Demand is driven by a number of factors. Population growth is one of them, so we're going to look at that in the census. Immigration, so folks moving into the United States. Now that has two impacts. One is obviously it drives up population, but the other is in general, new immigrants to the United States will rent as opposed to own more or less for that first generation they're here. About 60-40 rental ownership as opposed to the in-place population in the United States that is 60-40 ownership rental or something in that rough neighborhood. There's also some demographic issues in terms of the aging of baby boomers as they retire and potentially increase the level of renting that they're doing and the formation of new households by echo boomers, as we refer to them, that are maybe finally moving out and beginning to set up their own homes. The final factor being home ownership percentage. So we're going to look at the census in terms of the population numbers. And then I do have some data on home ownership I'll bring in that'll help us understand that. And then we'll take a look at supply, what we built this last year, 
uh, in this last decade in terms of new units in the country and whether or not that was enough to meet the demand that we can see from the census. Some interesting facts about the census and what it tells us about growth in the United States that I, I just offer these because they're, as I said, they're kind of interesting, not necessarily tied to multifamily. So the national growth rate was 7.4%. Uh, we added about, um, uh, where's the number here? We added almost 23 million, 22 million 700,000 new residents in the United States. That 7.4% number is slow. That is slower growth than we are used to seeing. And if you go to the census uh, website, uh, the government website for the census, and look at the forecasts for future growth by decade, you'll see that it will continue to slow. That is the forecast. Will that be how it actually plays out? We'll have to see. But we had a relatively small amount of growth compared to past decades, and that trend is going to be continuing. There are 22 states. The data I'm looking at includes the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. Again, non-political, whether you think DC should be a state or not, but it's in this data. So just want to disclose that. 22 are at or above that growth rate of 7.4%. So as you can see, the growth is a little more skewed towards some number of states because it's not 25 or 26, it's not exactly in the middle, um, but not too far skewed from that standpoint. The top five states in terms of the number of residents that they added are Texas at 4 million, Florida 2.7 million, California at 2.2, almost 2.3 million, Georgia at a little over a million, and Washington State at just under a million. So that's the top five. Now, some of you may look at that when I'm reading that and say, well, wait a minute, I get Texas and Florida and Georgia and Washington. And as a matter of fact, each of those states grew faster than the national average somewhere between one and a half to twice as fast as the national average. Texas uh, leading the way. But California grew as well, even though it grew more slowly than the country did. It only grew at about 6%, but it still grew. So when we hear stories about the migration from California to the Sun Belt, in particular to Texas and Florida and so on. Is that happening? Certainly. There are residents that are leaving California and moving to those other states. There are many, many more new residents coming to California, either by uh, virtue of the birth rate or by migration or immigration into the state. So still a significant amount of growth. For those of you that uh, enjoy that um, tug of war, if you will, between Texas and California. Texas did grow significantly faster 
than California did, not just percentage-wise, but also numerically. And yes, Texas will catch Florida if this trend continues. Uh, it won't be until 2080, but eventually Texas would catch California. California is just an extraordinarily large state, 39 and a half million people in the state of California, just a little over 29 million now in the state of Texas. So pretty interesting, I think. We had three states that did shrink. So Mississippi, not by much, 6,000 folks left Mississippi net. Um, so pretty close to not shrinking, but it did shrink a little bit. Illinois, Illinois shrank by 18,000 and West Virginia by 59,000. So those three states shrank a little bit. There's a bunch of other states that had very modest growth in the range of a few percentage points. As we said, we talked about the top five. Within the top 10, there were three that moved up and obviously three that moved down as they replaced them. So North Carolina, which had been number 10, moved up to number nine and they displaced Michigan, who fell to number 10. We like the Carolinas. If you're looking for potential investment spots around the country, we like a number of markets in the Carolinas, and this data is supportive of that. Uh, next on the list, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania moved up to number five, and in doing so, displaced Illinois. So Illinois fell from number five to number six. Uh, and as we said, Illinois was one of the states that actually shrank. And the big move was Florida. Florida is now the third most populous state in the United States. New York shrank in terms of its rating. It still added 800,000 residents, but it fell from number three to number four. And that's been a fairly consistent story for New York over the last few decades, continuing to grow, but growing more slowly than the rest of the country uh, as it moves down this, um, this list. Uh, they're ahead of uh, Pennsylvania by a pretty good margin, so probably not going to fall any further, at least not for the next few decades. So there's some interesting data that, um, like I said, it's just interesting. Okay, now let's talk about multifamily, about the supply and demand impact that we can tease out of this data. So this is at the national level. We don't have enough granularity yet in terms of markets to be able to speak more detailed about this. So we're gonna be talking about the national story. As I said, population grew 7.4% or 22.7 million people. Now, in the United States, the average household has 2.53, so two and a half people in the average household. It would not be surprising to discover that in urban and in particular in rental housing households, that number is a little lower, 
because there's more singles and young couples that rent or retirees that are empty nesters as opposed to families, in particular large families. Large families are more likely to own a home from that particular standpoint. But we're going to use that national average of 2.53. So based on 2.53 people in an average size household, the United States added almost 9 million households during the last 10 years from 2010 through 2020, uh, 8,973,000 by the math that we did. So we're going to call that 9 million. Of those 9 million, 65.8% of the entire country has made the decision to own a home. Now, that's actually a recovery from the low that we saw during this decade. So we finished the decade in a stronger position. Uh, not a topic for today, but we could certainly have a discussion about whether or not this is potentially describing a bubble in the housing market. As we move higher and higher, that's a factor that we saw in the 2000s, where we got almost a 70% home ownership. Um, so as I said, topic for another day. Today, we're at 65.8%. So when you apply that percentage, so 65.8 own the balance rent, that gives us a little over three, almost 3.1 million new rental households. So that data is part of the supply and demand, right? There's a demand piece we can plug in. 3.1 million new rental households. But we don't want to overlook that home ownership number. That's 65.8%. While it is higher than it was a few years ago, it is lower than it was in 2010. And because it's lower than it was in 2010, that reduction has, over that 10-year time frame, also created new rental households. By our calculation, 1.7 million new rental households because of the reduction in home ownership to 65.8%. So if we take the 3 million and change and add a million seven or so, we get 4.8 million new rental households over the last 10 years. Think about that. That's a really amazing number. 480,000 new rental households every year. How much supply did we add to deal with that? So we're not talking about any imbalance that may have existed previously. And there's um, a lot of data out there that will make the argument that there was anywhere from a, around a million dollar, uh, pardon me, a million unit shortfall to a three million unit shortfall. So let's just set that aside. And for this discussion, say there wasn't any shortfall. Just what happened this particular decade? Did we... Did we close that gap or did we expand it? So in most years during this last decade, we in fact had fairly robust new construction. The peak would be nationally around 300,000 units. 
Not every year was that large. And the data honestly can be a little challenging to come across because you'll see a number for permits, a number for starts, and a number for completions. And each of those actually gets smaller, right? So there's fewer starts than there are permits and there's fewer completions than there are starts. But let's use that number of 300,000 a year. That certainly would be the most aggressive number uh, to use. Now, part of what doesn't get reported annually is the number of units that are retired from service. We believe that number conservatively is around 100,000 units a year. And those units would be existing units that are purchased and demolished. The apartment building is torn down and some new use is put in place. It might be a different kind of commercial structure. It could be single family homes. It could be condominiums. It also could be new apartment units. Well, think about that. Those new units are counted in the 300,000. So it's a little odd if we count the new units that are built, but we don't take into account that we took units out. So we believe a more accurate number would be to say that there's about 200,000 net new units every year nationally. Now, I would also add to that that a significant percentage of the new construction in the last decade, because of the cost of construction, has been in the Class A space. There has been relatively little Class B, which is the class we like, Class B new development in the last decade, other than that that was supported with some sort of government funding, whether it was uh, tax uh, treatment that was provided or uh, actual uh, rental support that was provided uh, in return for uh, making the units affordable or some other factor that went into that. So 200,000 new units a year against 4.8 million, we're a couple million units short. All right, let's say that the data that I'm looking at and some of the assumptions I'm making, let's make some assumptions right now that were not spot on accurate. I'd say that's probably a pretty good assumption. And let's go further and say that I am wrong by a factor of 100%, meaning that I have doubled the actual impact here. We're still talking about falling behind by a million units. And until we see, I think, a significant shift in either the construction cost or an increase in the valuations of the existing product such that new construction begins to become viable as a competitor to the existing product. I don't know that we're going to see that gap close based on market conditions. Now, as a society, we could probably do a whole bunch of things to force that gap closed, um, but that's not, that's not what we're discussing today. We're talking about the market forces in a supply-demand environment. So the census says nationally we fell behind. But if you go in and look, 
I said, for example, there's three states that shrank. West Virginia shrank by 60,000. We think that that means about 8,000 rental households disappeared. So what happened to those units? Are those units now available? 8,000 rental units available in West Virginia doesn't do anything for the additional rental units that are needed in Florida or Texas or Georgia or the other states that we mentioned that grew so rapidly. So at a national level, it's one story, but it starts getting pretty lumpy when you look at the individual states. We're very active in the state of Texas for a variety of reasons. One is because the markets we like in Texas do grow faster than the national average. And so when we look at this data and see that Texas grew to the tune of 4 million new residents in the last 10 years, or 400,000 each and every year, that's pretty great news. Now, Texas was also part of the country that was a hotbed for new construction. So there was a lot of construction that happened in Texas that was able to absorb a great deal of that growth. Again, very focused on Class A, so did not absorb all of it. All right. Bottom line, what does all this mean? Well, it continues to tell us that multifamily real estate has a long runway in front of it in which we're going to have a very favorable supply-demand marketplace. Someday will that gap close? Sure, we would hope that it would close, right? We want everyone to have a nice home to live in, whether it's rental housing or a home that they own of their own. Just getting it closed, though, doesn't mean that suddenly multifamily will be a bad place to invest. It'll simply mean that it's even more stable than it is today. Today, we have seen and continue to see upward pressure on rents. In particular, when some investment is made to bring an older property, say an 80s vintage property, up to current standards, to, to bring it up to what a property that's 30 years younger uh, would in fact uh, look like. And that is a core part of our investment thesis. If you're looking at making a multifamily investment, we would encourage you to take a hard look at the Class B space, in particular the Class B space that's got a little age on it, like we said, 80s would be a nice vintage, and that has the opportunity to add some value to it by making some modest investments. Class B, when you look at this data, is the class that really experiences a lot of the upward pressure in terms of uh, demand from new households and doesn't see much in the way of new supply because of the cost factors we talked about a moment ago. So I hope this, you found this interesting. As we go into the future over the next, I think it will be several months, we will see more data released uh, from the Census Department. And as they do, and we get a chance to drill down to certain markets, we'll come back and revisit this and talk about the markets we like. We'll take a look and see how they performed over the last 10 years. 
Uh, and we'll also take a look at some markets maybe that we, Mara Polling, are not active in, but that we hear a lot about, right? There's a lot of folks that are very interested in some markets out west. Uh, there's some markets in Arizona that people like a great deal. Uh, Georgia is a marketplace that we're not active in, but we know a lot of uh, investors are active there. Same with Florida. And I already mentioned the Carolinas, which are some markets that we like. So when we get more data, we'll dig in and take a look at those as well and see what we can glean from all that. I hope you found today's session enjoyable. As I said, if you have questions, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. And please join me next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Polling.